0: Why I would think that was a weird question, I don't know, but you guys obviously do. All right, um, so we have a lot to say about Macbeth and, um, and not all that much time to say it in. Um, but that's okay, we'll do what we can. Uh, let's start, um, what we've been talking about is time and the ownership of time and the future. Let's, let's um, talk about that or get to that um, in a somewhat different way, but in a way that's central to Macbeth. Um, By talking this time in Macbeth about window characters, that is the kind of character that we were looking at in Horatio, um, the figure who gives us a perspective, Shakespeare does this a lot, um, the figure who gives us a perspective on the main figure that allows us to stabilize our own point of view on the main figure and get a sense of just exactly what's going on. So in Hamlet, um, what we saw demonstrated very carefully by Shakespeare is the accuracy of Horatio's perception. Um, that's Horatio, that the sort of character that Horatio is, is not the invention of Hamlet, nor indeed probably the invention of Shakespeare, but Shakespeare is really interested in making those characters um, come alive for the audience. So what we saw in Horatio was the combination of accuracy and self-possession and um, firmness and courage that made it make sense that he was a friend of Hamlet's and that he was finally the person on whom Hamlet could rely from the first when he says to, when he doesn't believe in the ghost, but then does come to believe in the ghost, and then when he says to um, Hamlet that he saw the ghost for a length of time that a man with moderate haste could tell 100, um, where Marcellus and Bernardo say, no, longer, longer, and Horatio says, not when I saw it, to the way he doesn't allow his enthusiasm for um, telling Hamlet, making Hamlet believe him, to um, make him exaggerate what he's seen. Remember, he says of the ghost that his beard was as he had seen it in life, a sable silvered, which is to say that he could have answered that question even if he hadn't seen the ghost. All that accuracy on Horatio's part makes him, first of all, in a technical sense, in a craft sense, the character whose point of view we can believe who when he says something is so, his judgment cues our judgment in the audience, the audience's judgment, and that's important. But secondly, and this is what's really Shakespearean about Horatio as a character, someone whose friendship on Hamlet's part we can believe. We can see why Hamlet finally finds in Horatio his only friend, but a friend who he feels is absolutely a friend, the kind of friend that Polonius wanted Laertes to find, those friends thou hast who are tried and true, who bind them to thee with hoops of steel. That really is what Horatio is to Hamlet, so that Hamlet can say to Horatio, give me the man that is not passion's slave, and I will hold him to my heart, yea, even in my heart of heart as I do thee. That is Horatio's accuracy, turns out not to simply be a convenience for the play, um, which such characters always are, but essential to Hamlet's experience of the possibility of friendship. I'm pushing this because I think the possibility of friendship is something that Shakespeare thinks a lot about. It is what plays are about, relationships between people who are talking to each other. We saw it to some extent in Richard II, where the window characters don't quite do what they should or ought to do. Um, O'Mearle isn't quite enough for Richard. Bolingbroke is. He's the character who understands Richard. But their friendship is a strange one. But again, now think of the following riff on a kind of devel- developing sense or sequence of pairs of character in Shakespeare, that Bolingbroke is to Richard in a really deep way what Horatio is to Hamlet. Um, that is the figure who really understands a somewhat energetic and somewhat antic and perhaps crazy figure, but there is one <coughs> piercingly accurate person who understands him and whose understanding comes out, strange as it may seem, as what friendship is. And then think of who such figures would be in King Lear. Kent to Lear is such a figure. The Fool is another aspect of that figure for Lear. Edgar is such a figure to Gloucester. Um, To some extent, perhaps, um, Edmund also will end up being such a figure to Edgar. Um, those figures are Shakespeare is really interested in. We didn't do Othello, but then in Othello, Shakespeare does something fascinating, which he kind of goes back to the Richard II the idea um, and makes Iago the figure in that relationship to Othello. Iago is to Othello oddly as Horatio is to Hamlet and perhaps less oddly as um, Bolingbroke is to Richard. Now, when we come to Macbeth, um, we see yet another such figure in Banquo. Banquo is to Macbeth at the start of the play, really more or less what Horatio is to Hamlet. They are friends and the friendship between Banquo and Macbeth is something striking and quite well done and quite beautiful. One example that you can see that in is in Act 1, Scene 3, right after they've seen The Witches, where um, if you start at page 2583 of the Norton, Act 1, Scene 3, um, line 77, let's start, where the witches vanish, and Banquo and Macbeth are amazed by what they've seen. And then Banquo says, the earth hath bubbles as the water has, and these are of them. They're bubbles of earth. Um, These are of them. Whither are they vanished, says Banquo. And Macbeth um, marvels with him into the air, and what seemed corporal melted as breath into the wind. That, by the way, would be a one-line summary of the theme of the play, what seemed corporal melted as breath into the wind. Would they had stayed, but nothing stays in this play. Nevertheless, would they had stayed. Banquo, in wonder, were such things here as we do speak about? Or have we eaten on the insane route that takes the reason prisoner? So each is confirming for the other that they actually saw this thing, although they might both be mad. Nevertheless, each is confirming for the other that they've seen this thing. If you stage this right, what you have are two friends who are speaking to each other in tones of wonder about what they've just seen. And you can see that in the next line, Macbeth to Banquo, your children shall be kings, as though that's what Macbeth is interested in. It's the good thing that will happen to Banquo. And Banquo responds in kind, you shall be king. And they continue talking in "thane of Cawdor," Went it not so, Banquo, to the selfsame tune and words, who's here? And that little brief syncope, as Thomas De Quincey will call a similar moment later in the play, that little brief pause between the disappearance of the witches and the entry of Ross and Angus, that is the beginning of all the Scottish um, turmoil. That little moment where they're alone on stage together, just talking, that's a moment that Shakespeare loves, a moment of friendship between a main and a window, between a main character and the the one character who knows the main character. Shakespeare loves the reaction and the interrelation that he can get between them, and you see it again um, he pushes it at line 117 when um, Ross and Angus when Macbeth thanks Ross and Angus and then says to Banquo, "Do you not hope your children shall be kings when those that gave the thane of Cotter to me promised no less to them That is he's sharing the good news that he's just gotten here. It's what's going to drive them apart, what's going to cause Macbeth to see Banquo murdered, um, but not yet. Right now, what you're getting is he's sharing that news and that wonder, and Shakespeare is really pushing that. Um, you can see it again um, on um, in the moment um, when Macbeth says to Banquo after Duncan's, after he's been made king that he wants to confer with him. Um, that he wants to talk to him. Part of what Shakespeare is doing here, by the way, is in the source, they really are very good friends. And in the source, what, something that Shakespeare changes is Banquo is part of the plot against Duncan in the source. Um, here, Banquo is innocent of that because that's dramatically what Shakespeare wants to happen, is that you have the good um, member of this pair of friends um, the good member who is not responsible for murder and the evil member who is and what divides them is that Macbeth finally chooses violence but even in this play um, Banquo Banquo's thoughts are troubled he too is thinking about violence he also has ideas um, for things that um, that he could do um, and um, he has a little soliloquy I was going to turn us to it but we don't um, probably don't have time for it but he has a little soliloquy where he's troubled by his own thoughts Um, and uh, well no we won't do it now Um, then um, he talks to Macbeth and again there's friendship between them but now go to um, act 5 scene 3 to see where this ends up Um, And this is uh, page 2626 of the Norton, Act 5, Scene 3, um, around line uh, 20. Um, What's happened here is Macbeth is hearing um, that all the oracles of the witches have come true, that they can't be trusted, which is very troubling to him, because what Macbeth wants is something or someone to trust. And since Banquo died, he doesn't have such a person. Um, and so he is, um, he is hearing how everything is going back. The servant enters. Uh, this is line 11 of Act 5, Scene 3. Um, and Macbeth sees that the servant is full of fear and says to him, uh, famous, uh, oft-quoted funny line like lily-livered, the devil, damn thee, black thou cream-faced loon. Um, where gots thou that goose look? And then the servant has the bad news um, that there are 10,000 uh, not geese but soldiers coming at him. Um, and Macbeth doesn't care. What soldiers, wayface, the servant? The English force so please you. And Macbeth, take thy face hence. Um, exit, servant, and then Macbeth calls for Satan, um, who, it, not Satan, not Satan as in could it be Satan, um, but Satan, the character, spelled differently. Um, and it's Satan is going to be his last chance for a friend. Um, Satan, he calls, and then he says, and this is a strange and important speech, um, the quickness of the change in tone in this speech, is strange but important. Satan, he calls, and then, I am sick at heart when I behold. And the question is, how would he have finished that sentence? He's just said, I don't have to worry about anything because the spirits that know have told me that I'm invulnerable. Now, he sends the servant who's fearful away and calls for Satan, Satan. Then he begins soliloquizing. I am sick at heart when I behold. And then he stops himself. Satan, I say, um, but Satan still hasn't come. And then he says, this push will cheer me ever or deceit me now. Now he's going. To, this is going to either make him or mar him. Um, there's still the question, though, what was he about to say? If you guys know what method acting is, um, what method acting essentially is, is if you do a character you try to think yourself into the soul and the mind of that character, and you try to make yourself um, understand everything the character is is doing and saying and motivating him. So if you're playing Macbeth, what you would have to do is figure out how he would have finished that line. Um, I am sick at heart when I behold what... Well, the only hint that Shakespeare will give us is in the lines that follow. I This push will cheer me now, will cheer me ever, excuse me, or deceit me now. Um, and then what he says is essentially, to quote Hamlet, it is no matter. You would remember Hamlet in the structural and even emotional equivalent to this moment just before the last duel, the last battle when Hamlet says to Horatio, but there's no one for Macbeth to say this to when Hamlet says to Horatio, you would not think how ill all's here about my heart and then he interrupts himself and he says but it is no matter I have misgivings, he goes on but I won't even talk about them. Um, this is the moment that matters, in a man's life is no more than to say, one, the interim is mine. Here, Macbeth says the same thing, but he's soliloquizing because Satan hasn't come, and there is no banquo to say this to, and there's also no Lady Macbeth to say it to. Um, that's important because what Macbeth has done is he's chosen Lady Macbeth over Banquo. In a choice of friend, he's chosen Lady Macbeth, who is unsexed, who's male, for him, who is saying we are friends and partners, not husband and wife. He's chosen Lady Macbeth over Banquo, and the result now is that Banquo is dead, and Lady Macbeth turned out not to have the firmness of psychological ability that Horatio did. So who's left? Satan, but Satan isn't there. Satan, I say, then alone. This push will cheer me ever, deceit me now, and it doesn't matter because I have lived long enough. That is, he's no longer worrying about the future, about (coughs) making his situation last, about making time something that he can own and count on. I have lived long enough. Then the strange, mysterious line, my way of life has fallen, is fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. And editors, um, until really the 20th century, were really freaked out by the word way there. My way of life is fallen into the seer, the yellow leaf. And whenever an editor is freaked out, um, it means you have a really interesting moment. It means Shakespeare did something interesting. Well, not whenever, but usually. Um, editors thought maybe what it should say is my May of life has fallen into the sea or the yellow leaf. That makes sense, right? It was spring. It was May. Um, in Waltham it still snows in May, of course, but that's not what that is meaning, if that's what he meant. Um, so May has turned into November, is um, how, how editors explained this, and they thought the W just got turned around. But way of life is a much better phrase, Um, and it also has the merit of being what Shakespeare wrote. My way of life is fallen into the seer, the yellow leaf. And notice that what Macbeth is essentially saying is the way I lived, the whole way I lived, it's also the path that I've gone, um, the way that I took, Um, the way that Dante talks about at the beginning of the Inferno where the way is lost um, the straight way um, the vita via straight way has become lost but it means the way I live has now become that moment which is the seer the yellow leaf and you should remember here sonnet 73 that time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold. And remember we talked about the oddness of that sequence, yellow leaf, or none or few, as though going straight to none is too climactic for what he's describing. Here he's talking about the seer, the yellow leaf, as though seer is too climactic. That's too much like poetry. My way of life has fallen into the seer leaf and everything will burn up in some sort of destruction, universal winter. But no, he says something and then he understates it in the next moment. And that effect is really important here. My way of life has fallen into the seer, no, that's too dramatic, the yellow leaf. If you can hear that, you can hear what you need to hear in Shakespeare. If you can hear the switch from a <clears throat> monosyllable, sear, into a less intense bisyllable, yellow. Sear is a stronger word. Any other poet would have, the sequence would have been yellow, and then no, more than yellow, sear leaf but not Macbeth and not Shakespeare, into the seer, the yellow leaf. And then what does that mean? And that which should accompany old age. So now we know that Macbeth is old. He's actually been king for quite a long time. Um, He was worried that he wouldn't be able to stay king, but he did. He's now old. But what good did it do him to be king, even for a long time? He's almost morphing into King Lear at this point. He's been king for a long time, and yet it's now. It's not king for many years, so it's all fine. It's king for a long time, and yet it's now. And that which should accompany old age. What things as honor, love, obedience, troops of friends, I must not look to have. So here again this is Macbeth's version of Richard's summary of human life to live with bread like you I'm going to quote this in every lecture I think to live with bread like you taste grief feel want need friends need friends that's what Macbeth does not have has much less than Richard had. Richard is alone but he has friends at the end of Richard II. Um, Merle and his friends try to restore Richard to the throne. Richard knows that he still has loyal followers, even when his disloyal followers have abandoned him. But Macbeth has Satan, and only Satan, and Satan isn't there. And so that which should accompany old age, as honor, love, obedience, troops of friends... And obedience there would have to mean willing obedience, the obedience that Lear wanted from his daughters after he gave up his kingdom. Yeah? Do we know if he's been king for a long time, or did the play just start late in his life? No, the play does not start late in his life. Shakespeare's audience knows, because the story of Macbeth is fairly well known. Um, Shakespeare knows and um, the insistence here on old age, when Macbeth begins as an extraordinarily good young fighter, is is the point. Does the play actually say no? Shakespeare, as you know, gives very few time markers. Um, but when he says, "I can't look to what I want as old age," what Shakespeare is telling the <laughs> producer is Macbeth's makeup here is old man makeup, um, aging man makeup. Um, some of you may have seen, and I saw twice, actually, Patrick Stewart's version of Macbeth, um, which was at BAM and then on Broadway a year or two ago. Um, and I, I want to say something about that production in a little while. It was, uh, it's fa- it was fabulous. Um, um, it was just an amazing thing. And um, there are a couple of things, there are a couple of touches that I'll tell you about. Um, but Patrick Stewart was, I think, 67 when he started performing it. Um, and um, that was perfect. Um, he's the perfect age, it turns out, for Macbeth, um, especially at the end of the play. And Patrick Stewart can, can do a young man um, perfectly well, partly because he was bald ever since he was 19, I think. Um, and No, this is literally true. He, he really was. He lost his hair somehow, um, either as a late teenager or in his early 20s, um, and he made that work for him. Yeah, did you want to say something? Um, it is a coincidence. Um, I don't think Shakespeare is really doing anything with the with the name Satan because whatever Satan is, he's not a satanic character. Um, but it may be, or an effect that you can get out of it is that um, Macbeth, as we've seen in his last scene with the witches, um, when what he says to them um, is is tell me what I want to know. And what they say is, okay, we're going to show you some stuff, but don't say anything. Um, you, this is, uh, it's, it's worth looking at, but, but hang on to this moment. Um, don't, don't go away. I'll just read it to you. Um, all the witches say to Macbeth, this is four one one nineteen, all the witches say to him, seek to know no more. And Macbeth's reply is, I will be satisfied deny me this and an eternal curse fall on you, let me know. So the witches who had totally frightened him and Banquo at the start of the play when he was young and naive and frightened of such things, you can see how different Macbeth is at the end of the play when he doesn't listen to the witch's absolute adjuration not to say another word. He's not frightened of them anymore. He wants to know the future, but he demands it. I will be satisfied. Where some of you will know the British will there, if you say I will, that that means a demand. It's not a future tense, it's a demand. Um, in American English, we don't have that distinction. But in British Eng- English, the future tense would be I shall satisfied. I will be satisfied means he's demanding it of them. So um, the effect that you can get at the end of the play is something like, yeah he calls on Satan as a familiar not someone that he's afraid of I don't think Shakespeare meant that but you could do that, yeah The play doesn't say Um, If you want to know, there is a strong hint at the end of the play that um, is not necessary for any understanding of it as a Shakespearean play, but there's a strong hint at the end of the play that there's plenty of further battle to occur, that Malcolm's kingship is by no means secure, and things don't settle until Fleance becomes king. Um, But that's why Malcolm is making sure that everyone um, comes to see him crowned at Scone, um, and is, is he was just as violent a king as Macbeth was uh, when he became king, and he wasn't king for long. Um, but that's not um, all that matters is the prophecy. Um, well, maybe also the discontinuity matters. That is um, the idea that um, what ultimately matters is knowing that there's a line of descendants and that that secures the future. Um, And that even having your son become king as Malcolm becomes king doesn't secure the future for you. Um, That probably does matter, but um, doesn't matter that much. It's a good question about the play, but the the quick answer is the play doesn't answer it. It Doesn't say how Fleance becomes king, only that he will. Yeah. On what? <laughs> I said I was going to question. I'm going to see Professor Byrd about to see Satan everywhere. Oh, is that a thing to say about Professor Bird? <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. You know, <laughs> well, well, I wonder. I was going to mention Milton's Satan, and almost does it. Uh, but the, the one actual reference we get to Satan in the entire play comes in Einstein, Act 4, Scene 3, when that one refers uh, to Luke's birth. Uh-huh. And this is angled upright still, the brightest bell. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, which matched really well in terms of his ambition and then the realization that all the power that he wanted doesn't actually get him anything. Oh I think that's absolutely true, and I think that um, you know, if you want to see if you do want to see Satan in Macbeth, um, which, is, which is always um, a noble ambition, um, it's, Macbeth is certainly one of the sources for Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost. And um, part of, and that's something that 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 gets us to something that I do want to talk about, which is that what Milton does in Paradise Lost, which is which is um, basically sixty years after Macbeth. Milton, um, when he was a boy, saw Shakespeare's plays um, being performed, um, and probably saw Macbeth. And then Milton was actually. it's complicated, as they say on Facebook. I guess it's a movie now. Um, but um, um, Macbeth, some of you will know, was a kind of um, uh, a greeting and uh, valentine and tip of the hat to James I, who's now king of England, and who traced his own descent from Banquo. Um, James was also very interested in witches, and he wrote, not only did he write a book about witches, but he went to witch trials, and um, he would would take the witches apart and um, ask them what it was like to be a witch, Um, so so this is partly what Shakespeare is doing, um, is writing a play to welcome James to England, which is very much about stuff that James was interested in, Um, James, you will know, united England and Scotland. We talked about this a little bit um, earlier. And one major part of uniting England and Scotland was the King James Bible. That's why it's called the King James Bible. Um, He had that Bible um, put together in order to try to get the English and the Scottish church um, into a united church. Um, And um, his son... Um, after he died in 1625, his son Charles I became King of England. Charles was rather a disaster as king. And we've talked about him before. He was the defendant in the parliamentary trial of the King versus the King. Um, and he lost to the capital K King and was beheaded um, as his punishment. And um, then, and all the theaters were closed, and when they were reopened, um, uh, the remakes of Shakespeare were performed, including Tate's version of King Lear. So see this is all 17th century history is seen from um, a Shakespearean uh, point of view, or a Shakespearean's point of view. Um, but Charles was um, a figure whom Milton wrote very strongly against. And so James I's son, Charles I, Milton was on the side of those who tried and executed him. Um, and then when his son, James II, became king of England, Milton wrote Paradise Lost, which was essentially about how terrible kingship was and how awful it was um, that bad people had won. Um, and uh, Milton was kind of a, I don't know, a coffee party or man. Um, for Milton, Milton Satan is the one rebel angel who is not simply selfish, but who achieves an enormous kind of um, intellectual and personal and characterological power. Um, And because of that, Milton Satan is also very lonely. Um, and in this, he's a whole lot like Macbeth, or that's what Macbeth contributes to uh, Milton Satan in Paradise Lost. Um, so there's no question that that's an important aspect of both Macbeth and of Satan. Um, is there friendlessness? And um, we should that's something that we should talk about a little bit, but let's just finish this speech. Um, in 5.3, so what he says is, I must not look to have those things which should accompany old age, as honor, love, obedience, troops of friends, I must not look to have, but in their stead, curses, not loud, but deep, mouth honor, breath, which the poor heart would fain deny and dare not. And then again, he calls for Satan. So not honor, but mouth honor. That's the distinction. Mouth honor, breath. He won't have real friendship. That's an extraordinary thing to notice in this most evil of of leading Shakespearean figures. That what makes him tragic in the end is that he will not have friends. And by friendship here is meant true friendship, real friendship. Villains almost never have friends. That's how you know they're villains um, in narratives. They have minions, they have people who do their bidding, they have people who are frightened of them, but they almost never have friends. Shakespeare's villains do. One of the things that makes them so interesting is the fact that it turns out that any interesting Shakespearean villain does in fact have someone that he or she cares about. An example is Claudius and his relation to Gertrude. Claudius really loves Gertrude and she loves him back. Another example is Edmund saying, yet Edmund was the loved all three now marry in an instant. What makes Edmund an interesting character, a character that we care about, is that it actually matters to him that Regan and Goneril loved him. That it wasn't, he wasn't simply the villain which he thought he would be at the start when he says, thou nature art my goddess, unto thee my services are due. But no, now he's saying, well, it all Turned out badly but I was beloved I did achieve that that's what Macbeth does not have he wants friendship but he doesn't have it and that's the tragedy now what he wants in wanting friendship is something that other characters in this play do get and what I want to do is show what Shakespeare, or what I want to point out to you, is what looks like a very minor moment in Shakespeare in this play, um, but I think really matters, which is Act 2, Scene 1. This is page 2591 of um, the Norton. Um, So what's going on here is that um, Macbeth is thinking that he is going to kill Duncan. Um, And we're being told in an extraordinarily efficient and powerful way, we're being given the atmosphere of the play, which is just how dark it is. Uh, Macbeth is going to point out how dark it is. The Porter and Macduff point out how dark it is. It's absolutely dark, which is appropriate, appropriate atmosphere for what's about to happen. Um, but the people who inform us of this are Banquo and Fleance. And that's a little bit surprising. Usually, if you have important characters, Shakespeare won't use them for scene setting. It doesn't it's not quite right, it's not quite good craft to use the important characters for scene setting. Um, The characters whose names you don't know should be the scene setters. It should be, you know, Ross and Lennox talking about how dark it is. Um, But it's not. It's Banquo and Fleance. So, enter Banquo and Fleance with a torch. This is the first we see of Fleance. And Banquo says, how goes the night, boy? Fleance, the moon is down. I have not heard the clock. Um, Banquo, and she goes down at 12. Fleance, I take tis later, sir. And Banquo says, Hold, take my sword. There's husbandry in heaven. Their candles are all out. That is, they're being careful not to burn their candles too much. Take thee that too. Um, That is, gives him um, his shield, presumably. A heavy summons lies like lead upon me, and yet I would not sleep. Merciful powers restrain in me the cursed thoughts that nature gives way to in repose. Um, Then... Macbeth comes in, and he draws. Give me my sword, who's there? Um, So here what we're getting, really interestingly, is a sense that Banquo's friendship has shifted from Macbeth to Fleance. That is, Macbeth and Fleance come in, yes, as father and son, very much as father and son. Um, Probably you would want Fleance doubled with Satan. That is, you would want the same actor playing both Fleance and Satan. Um, But it's to Fleance that Banquo describes how he's feeling. Even his murderous thoughts. This is a kind of parallel of the scene where Macbeth tells Lady Macbeth what he's thinking, the horrible thoughts he has. Yeah? Is it noteworthy that as soon Yes, exactly noteworthy. That is, it's almost as though from Macbeth's, from excuse me, from Banquo's point of view, this is the Banquo version of the banquet scene, where Banquo appears to Macbeth. Um, that is, um, they're parallel figures, um, sort of like Gloucester and Lear, with different fates, sort of like Gloucester and Lear. Um, and the parallel here is, yeah, Banquo has bloody thoughts, too. Um, When he hears the future, there are things on his mind. Um, What's on his mind is, how do I get Fleance to be king? How does that work? When Macbeth hears the witches, he thinks, how do I get rid of Duncan? And how do I get rid of Malcolm, who's now been made Prince of Cumberland, which is the Scottish version of Prince of Wales? How do I get rid of them? But... The difference, and so the the thoughts that Banquo is having are thoughts that in some sense Macbeth symbolizes. Um, And that's a nice little moment when for uh, for just a scene, the play is focused on Banquo. Um, Then we're gonna get the mirror image of that when the play focuses on Macbeth. The difference, though, is that Macbeth has taken Lady Macbeth as his friend, and Banquo has taken Fleance. And what Lady Macbeth has essentially done is said, later generations don't matter. And what um, Banquo is saying is later generations do matter. Um, It's a difference, it's friendship, what, what Shakespeare is thinking through here is the relationship of friendship to time. Um, that is to say that if the fact the given fact about this play which Macbeth summarizes in the Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow speech which let's look at um, that's act 5 scene 5 line 17 which is um, page 26 28 in this play notice that that Famous speech is prompted by the death of Lady Macbeth. Um, So Macbeth and Satan are there, um, and he hears the cry of women. He's he's, um, setting up the castle for defense, but then there's a cry within of women. What is that noise? He asks. Satan, it is the cry of women, my good Lord. And then Macbeth says, I have almost forgot the taste of fears. The time has been. My senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek, and my fell of hair would at a dismal treatise, rouse and stir as life were in it. I have supped full with horrors. Direness, familiar to my slaughterous thoughts, cannot once start me. Um... So what he's saying here is everything that set me up as a character at the start of the play, fear of the witches, fear of Lady Macbeth, fear of the dagger, fear of killing Duncan, all that, all that brain sickliness, to use the odd word that Lady Macbeth applies to him. She also says that she would scorn to have a heart so white as he does, all that paleness, that whiteness, the cream-faced loon, all of that is gone from Macbeth. There's no longer anything for him to fear. He's supped full with horrors. And so there's the cry of women, and he's not worried. He asks Satan, wherefore was that cry? And Satan replies, the queen, my lord, is dead. And he has the famous, ambiguous um, response to that, she should have died hereafter, which can mean um, wasn't really helpful for her to die right now. She should have held off. Um, but doesn't mean that, even though some people will say it does. Um, what it really means is if it is not now, yet it will come. It's another version of that speech of Hamlet's. It doesn't matter when. If she, she's dead, but she would have died anyhow. Um, it would have happened anyhow. There would have been a time for such a word. Um, it was always in the offing, and when it came, it would always be in the present. And then the famous speech, which like to be or not to be, is so familiar that it's hard to pay attention to it. But the speech beginning tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. Notice that that speech is not what we almost always paraphrase it as meaning, which is today and today and today. That's how everyone understands it. This day and then another day just like this day, and then another day just like this day. Um, but it's not simply about the iteration of the fact that it's always now, but it's also an iteration of the fact that even then it will always be now, that you can look forward to when there would have been a time for such a word. You can look forward to the hereafter in this life, tomorrow rather than today. But all tomorrow will be is the moment when there's simply another tomorrow, which itself will be simply a moment of another tomorrow. So tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow... Creeps in this petty pace from day to day. That's all there is. To the last syllable of recorded time. So it's all recorded, but it's recorded somehow as language. It's again, recorded time means it will all happen, but it will happen syllable by syllable to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. That is, all the past is meaningless just as all the future is meaningless. All the future is tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and all the past was yesterday, yesterday, yesterday. Remember what Lady Macbeth has said to Macbeth and what he's picking up on here. What he's remembering here is Lady Macbeth. um, asking Macbeth, when does Duncan propose to leave? And Macbeth says, tomorrow. And Lady Macbeth replies, oh, never shall sun that morrow see. That is, um, he thought there would be a tomorrow, but there won't. The sun will not see the tomorrow in which he lives. Why? Because he'll be dead. At the end of the play, Macbeth, when he's about to fight Macduff in his last battle, says, "I begin to be a weary of the sun. He'll never see the sun again." I mentioned before, and I just, I just um, um, uh, underscore the parallel now that Antony, too, in Antony and Cleopatra, will talk about the last sunset that he sees. Oh, sun," he says, as the sun is setting. Thou, by uprise I shall see no more. So the idea that this is the day, that there will be only a day, a day that you die, that all there is is the present day. That's the idea that's being pressed here too. Yeah? Yeah, these references, but Lady Macbeth specifically about the sun will not that moral see, is that also the king as sun reference, which is And is that what you put on your quiz? The, yeah, it is. It is the is son reference. Um, that is the the king is the king is king as um, um, the the rightful inheritor of it, but now a wrongful inheritor will get it. She doesn't mean no. I, mean, no, I know you mean S U N son, but um, but in Richard the U N and S O N are also um, combined, and that goes back to to um, to the soliloquy that opens Richard the Third. Um, Now is the winter of our discontent, make glorious summer by this son of York, where the pun is he's the child of the house of York, the son of the Duke of York, as well as the sun in the sky. So in English, um, not only for Shakespeare, but preeminently for Shakespeare, the homonym of son, S-U-N, and son, S-O-N, is is something that he's always pressing, um, because the Proper king is also the proper son um, the person who has inherited the kingship correctly and this allows all sorts of Christian imagery to come in as well that is the son of God is also the son of God Um, yeah I thought your hand was up sorry okay Um, so that's all there is out out brief candle Um, now remember the candle is all our yesterdays all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. So the brief candle is the candle of the day. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow Um, lit by the candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then (coughs) is heard no more. So here we get one of those. Shakespearean references to the fact that the play itself is about to end. Um, The same thing that we saw in Hamlet, my father dead these two hours. Um, We are being focused on the play itself. And the play is now being made into the metaphor for the life that it's describing. You want to know, Macbeth is saying, how long does a human life feel well, it feels about as long as this play that you're watching. It's something that lasts an hour or two and then is gone. Um, So that funneling into the present moment, Macbeth is complaining and has been anxious from the start that time is only the present moment. And the play is a demonstration, the very form of tragedy and the very story that the play is telling and the very unfolding of the psychological destruction that the play is describing is one in which we are aware of the play coming to an end and the, and the character itself is saying that's how long life is. This play isn't a representation of life. what The experience of life itself is the experience of a play that lasts an hour or two and then that's it. And then it's over. The present of the play and the present of life are not two different things. You don't go to the theater and then um, leave life behind and then you come back and life is vast and wonderful. It's all there is is that present moment. And that's what Macbeth is saying here. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So that's ultimately what it comes down to. Um, Why? Because there is no one to talk to. It's different for Banquo. He's dead, but he has a future, and that future is in his descendants. And that's what Macbeth is complaining about, or that's what's so um, terrifying for Macbeth. Um, It's also important to notice that that, um, this idea of life um, being lit to its own grave, he's gotten that idea from Lady Macbeth. The doctor is surprised that she's found a light to sleepwalk around in. And Macbeth's image here of what life is, that's an image that he gets from her. But but sleepwalking is exactly the problem. That is, she's there strutting and fretting, walking around with a candle and not there because she won't talk to him. They are not talking to each other anymore. And what counts in life, the only way to feel that you are not caught in the absolute present moment forever is to have someone to talk to because having someone to talk to having someone who talks to you as well is to be outside of the sheer and absolute isolating locality of the present that's what Macbeth can't get out of and that's the trap that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are put in from the start go back to the beginning of the play go look at some of um, these moments for example um, in act one um, scene seven um, which is one of Macbeth's famous speeches where he begins um, this is page 2589 Um, if it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. He's making a little prayer here which is going to come ironically true. I mean the irony at his own expense. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If it were all over after I killed him, then it should happen quickly. I should take the plunge. If the assassination could trample up the consequence and catch with his surcease success. So if somehow assassinating him could take everything into its net at once, if that were a net that I could cast and get everything together so that I would have the whole success and own it at the moment of assassination, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. Um, That's a phrase, by the way, that Sarah Palin misuses, um, be all and end all. Just so you know, when you hear her say it, she's not actually getting it right from Macbeth. Um, But that, but this one might be the be all and the end all here. If only that could be it. If only I could kill him and become king and that would be the way things were. If that were true, that would be great But here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. So that's a famous phrase that, again, you should think about, this bank and shoal of time. Time is always passing. And what Macbeth is imagining is giving up an afterlife, giving up the future after this life, giving up heaven but also giving up hell and saying, if only I could get off the river of time and stay here upon this bank and shoal of time, exit the river, get onto dry land, watch the river pass but simply stay here, the future wouldn't matter. If Only, but it doesn't work because even if I attempt the reverse lesson from the lesson of this play that there is only now, even if I take that as a reason to kill Duncan, even if I don't privilege the future but only say that the present matters. Even in the present, I would be punished. I would commend the ingredients of my poison chalice to my own lips. That is to say, I would be just like Claudius at the end of Hamlet. Um, Go a little bit further when he decides that he's going to um, kill Banquo, Um, and what he says Is this is um, page twenty six hundred, Act three, Scene one. So he invites Banquo to the feast. Of course, the irony here is that he that he thinks that he's telling Banquo come to the feast to simply reassure Banquo, but Banquo is going to come. It's a little horror movie moment fail not our feast, says Macbeth at um, 3129, and Banquo replies, my Lord, I will not. Um, And then he calls for the murderers, and then he says, at line 49, to be thus is nothing. So to be king, to be here where I am, to be thus is nothing. What is something to be safely, thus. But to be thus is nothing. That's the nothing that the signifying nothing is going to be talking about in the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. To be thus is nothing. All I have is the instantaneity of the present moment. What matters is to be safely thus. Our fears in Banquo stick deep and in his royalty of nature reigns that which would be feared, tis much he dares, and to that dauntless temper of his mind he hath a wisdom (coughs) that doth guide his valor to act in safety. There is none but he whose being I do fear, and under him my genius is rebuked, as it is said Mark Antony's was by Caesar. So that's another bit of evidence that Shakespeare is working on the plays together. He talks about just that, that's what the soothsayer says in *Amen um, and Cleopatra*. He, Banquo, chid the sisters when first they put the name of king upon me and bade them speak to him. Then, prophet-like, they hailed him father to a line of kings. Upon my head, upon my head, they placed a fruitless crown and put a barren scepter in my grip thence to be wrenched with an unlineal hand, no son of mine succeeding. So what he's saying is I'm king, and there's no future whatever, only the present. For Lady Macbeth, that's okay. She'd said earlier, I feel the future in the present. That is, all that matters is the present moment. But Macbeth doesn't think so. They put a barren scepter in my grip. No son of mine succeeded. Um, for and then the great line, for yeah. <laughs> well he has no children. That's what I'm saying. Um, so, so we, what you're saying is he what he should be doing is is um, trying to trying to get children. Yeah. like possibility Yeah, well the, it's probably you would feel that it's not a possibility. That is that um his any scepter is barren. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. The set his scepter is barren, he's found from bitter experience. Um <laughs> At least, at least atmospherically so. The point is the Macbeths don't have a child, and the phantom moment where it looks, don't call it a metaphor, but call it, um, call it a sort of flicker of possibility. The moment when it looks like they could have a child is the moment when that child has its head dashed out. Um, now, it doesn't really. Lady Macbeth says, I would do it, um, I have given suck, I would do it. And what Shakespeare is doing is orchestrating a kind of responsiveness in us, a kind of imagery in us, as he does, we've talked about this before, um, as he did with calling Macbeth Bologna's bridegroom before place making it the fact that Macbeth didn't know that Cotter um, was a rebel. Um, what, what is subliminally happening here is that we have a sense of a a violent um, refusal of a child to Macbeth. Um, It didn't really happen, but that's still what we're carrying away in the periphery of our mind. Macbeth then replies again, bring forth men children only, he says to Lady Macbeth, um, which is somehow feels like a shocking and unnatural line, even though it makes perfect sense it's what Henry VIII wanted also. Um, What he's basically saying is, you know, I hope we have sons. Um, But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you are such a manly woman that you might give birth to men, which is really weird to think of women giving birth to boys. Um, Now, that question of women giving birth to boys all of this is subliminal imagery on Shakespeare's part. What Shakespeare is doing, its not we're not going to pay much attention to it, but I will say it because he is doing it. Shakespeare is really good at following through the story that he's telling while putting in your mind at a level where you're not going to think about it or analyze it or simply get its straight ahead everyday meaning putting in your mind a sense of the system of thought that the characters in this play, not real people, but that the characters in this play are possessed by. So the system of thought that they're possessed by is something like there is something very unnatural about women giving birth to men. Not unnatural about women giving birth to boys, because there is a boy in the play, young Macduff, um, and there's his mother, and their relationship is a good one. That's the possible other world that is precisely described there in order to distinguish it from the world of Macbeth, and of Banquo, and even of Macduff himself. The witches have beards. Banquo recognizes them as women despite the fact that they have beards. Macduff is not born of woman. Why not? Well, because he's from his mother's womb untimely wrenched, but the idea there is that the natural process where women give birth to children, half of whom are boys, is not what happens in Scotland. What happens, <laughs> that, um, what happens in Scotland is that what happens in Scotland is that you have these sort of fierce, savage, um, wild, bearded females, and the way you can tell that they're fierce, savage, wild and wild, besides the fact that they have beards <laughs> is that they give birth to men. and the sort of implicit extremely archaic, naive idea here is that um, people reproduce themselves and the proof that uh, that someone is basically manly is if she gives birth to a man. Um, Lady Macbeth, again, this is all subliminal imagery, but what we are to feel is Lady Macbeth has given birth to Macbeth. Um, and um, she is as much his male mother um, as the witches are um, and as whoever his real mother would be. So when he says to her, bring forth men, children only, um, if that sounds like a striking and horrid line, um, the fact that it does means that Shakespeare's been successful. That is, the content of that line there's nothing strange about the content of that line at all, but McMath means it to be strange. Look what you're like. Um, you'll give birth to males. Why? Because you're so male yourself, um, as though she's, she's um, not a double X but a double Y, and any child she has will have a Y chromosome. That's what's so weird about her. Um, so that's, that's um, the odd and bizarre atmosphere that we're in this play. And so now Macbeth has no children, partly because atmospherically he can't have children because he's married to a man, uh, because Lady Macbeth is male. That is not, there's not a homoerotic relationship, um, but simply because she is male. She is a male woman, what psychoanalysis sometimes calls a phallic woman. Um, and so, of course, they don't have children. And whatever child they had, had its, head, had its um, head knocked out by Lady Macbeth. In reality, no, in her speech, which is so much more important than reality. But now what Macbeth is saying is, therefore, for Banquo's issue, I have, have I filed my mind? And I just want to point that line out and then say one further thing. What Macbeth is saying here is not um, I got myself into this very uncomfortable and terrible situation where I'm going to die for no purpose of my own, but he says I have defiled my mind for this. I have made myself a defiled person. His tragedy is that he is Macbeth. And that's important. Now, there is something further I want to say to get us back to Satan. So there's um, the critic Lionel Abel in 1960, using Macbeth as one of three or four examples, um, came up with a very important notion, which he called daimonization, being made a daimon. And what he uses is he talks about Greek tragedy, but he says this is true of Macbeth as well, that what tragedy will give you, especially Greek tragedy, is a character who hits bottom in such a way that no further pain or grief or horror or terror can occur to that character. Um, where Where the character becomes invulnerable because he or she has nothing left to lose and is therefore utterly indifferent to anything that can happen. Edgar believes himself to be such a character at the beginning of Act 4 of King Lear. When he's hit to be worse, the lowest and most dejected thing of fortune, need fear, nothing, he says. What Abel is interested in is what he calls um, interactions between true daimons and false daimons. What a false daimon is, is someone who believes that they are indifferent to anything that happens to them. Um, and for his example of that in Oedipus, if you know Oedipus, is, or in Oedipus at um, Colonus, or in Antigone, rather, is that Cleon is the false daimon and Antigone is the true one. He thinks that he has hit a maximum of bitterness and losslessness, but he hasn't. Antigone has. In Macbeth, he sees Lady Macbeth as the false daimon she believes that nothing can happen to her and that she is therefore has absolute power, but she doesn't. Duncan looks like her father. She goes mad. Macbeth starts out fearful, but he becomes at the end of the play what Lady Macbeth thought she was at the start of the play. He is the true um, version of what Lady Macbeth was a false version of. And what makes him so powerful is there is nothing left for him to want to own at the end of the play. His tragedy, his fear, his fearfulness is there's nothing he can own. Time doesn't let itself be owned. But the end of the play is, yeah, there's nothing to own. There's nothing you can lose because there's nothing that you have. And that's what finally makes Macbeth great, is his absolute achieved and absolute indifference even to who Macduff turns out to be. Um, He has become utterly without fear or anxiety. Um, It's a version of catharsis or purgation and it's amazing that that purgation that catharsis should occur in a character like Macbeth who is, and this is Shakespeare's fantastic experiment, who is both fearful and evil, really a bad combination in narrative, fearful and evil, and yet he becomes an extraordinary tragic figure who is neither at the end. Um, okay, Antony and Cleopatra over vacation. Have a good break. Papers? You want papers? Come get it.